Welcome to the Primal Endurance Podcast. Slow down and enjoy the show, where we rap, literally, about everything you need to know. I'm your host, Brad Kearns. Are you ready? Let's go. Ryan Hall, glad to catch up with you again. You're, you're all over the place, man. You're, you're a guy on the go, you and Sarah. Yes, um, we do bounce around quite a bit. So, um, yeah, thanks for having me on. And the wonderful occasion is your new book, Run the Mile You're In. What about that title, man? What does that mean? Yeah. Uh, so, you know, when I think about doing hard things, I, I think about like, how do you do that? You know? So like, for example, before I was going to do the world marathon challenge, which I'm sure we'll get into later, I was thinking about like, how the heck am I going to run seven marathons in a row? And I just kept reminding myself, like, it's just about taking one step at a time and refusing to not take another step. And that goes back to like, just being present in the moment. So that's kind of where run the mile you're in comes from. Like I just, I talked about it in the book and it was just became like a big theme kind of throughout my career of especially when I started marathoning of not focusing so much on the road ahead of me that seems way too hard for me but rather just come back do a good job in the mile that I'm in right now I can't I can't tell you how many times I thought about that on long tempo runs and long runs and just some really grueling workouts that I couldn't have made it through if uh if I wasn't just staying present in in that moment so I think that's the ideal competitive disposition that you just characterized. But when you get to the elite level, as you were trying to get those incremental improvements, uh, sometimes would that mean uh, pulling back and, and, and not running the mile that you're in, but ending a workout or taking, taking time off when uh, you, you realize you're too far at the edge. Yeah. I mean, that's really the, the journey that you travel and training. Like people ask me all the time about like, how do I pace for my next race, my next marathon, half marathon, whatever it might be. And I always tell them like, you learn your lines in training and you learn those lines by crossing over them and suffering through workouts and dying, <laughs> dying a slow, miserable death. Um, but really, that's the only way to learn those lines. So yeah, like running and marathoning in particular is an art form of learning where your lines are and staying just south of crossing over that line where you're going to blow up. So there are certainly times like in the Boston Marathon, uh, all, all the years that I ran Boston where guys are surging and I, I want to go with it, but I know if I go with it, I'm going to end up fading. I'm going to cross over that line. It's going to be bad for me. So there's certainly times where, yes, running the mile you're in means also being wise as well and knowing how to spend your energy well. So you were known as this go for broke kind of guy where you trained, you did these extreme workouts and then you'd throw down these, you know, amazing performances and, and performance breakthroughs and winning titles and setting records. And I'm not sure that uh, all the elite runners have that same temperament. I know you have to to push and take risks, but would you characterize yourself as a guy who was uh, that that go for broke guy that uh, got bigger payoffs and maybe had more struggles accordingly? Oh yeah, yeah, for sure, without a doubt. Um, I've I've always been a big dreamer ever since I was a little kid, and so I always went for my dreams, you know, and. Um, 
during that process, I had to learn to fail well. <laughs> so not take my failures personally, not make it an identity issue, because that's the thing. If you're going to be a big dreamer, you have to be equally as resilient. Um, I learned that from my church in Bethel. Um, they talked about that where it's like, that's great that you're dreaming big, but let's talk about the other side of the coin of going after your dreams, failing, and being able to pick yourself up again and go after it again with the same tenacity that you went at it the first time. Um, so that I think that is like kind of what set my career apart was I was willing to take big risks and go for it. And I can tell you like there was a dozen times or so where it worked out really well. And there was probably hundreds of times when it didn't work out. Well, you know, it definitely didn't work out as many times as, or it, it, yeah, it didn't work out as many more than the times that it did work out. Yeah, I wonder if this is an inescapable personality attribute where you called yourself a dreamer from a young age, and so therefore your career played out in this way where you you did you did crazy stuff and you had wild success, and then you had to learn to process failure, and then maybe the next person. Ah, I mean, I've talked to Meb about his consistency and his going until he's forty and still making another Olympic team. Or you read about Kipchoge, who's doing you know the same type of training pattern week in, week out, and never uh, you know never going over that exact uh, uh, place where he is in his in his training build. And I, I talk about this with my my old time athletes like Andrew McNaughton, where you know I had. Um, I had a lot of wins on the pro circuit and I had a whole bunch of DNFs as well. And if you look at someone else's resume, they might have had a lot of third, fourths and fifths and some seconds and a couple wins and they never dropped out of a race ever in their life and they're so proud of it. And it's like, wow, you know, sometimes you want to be more consistent and want to have these attributes like longevity. But then I'm wondering, you know, was this just honoring yourself and doing what you needed to do with your dream? Totally. I think you, you hit the nail on the head there. It's like honoring yourself. And that's what I was thinking about as you were talking about guys like Meb, for example, like he's just so even keel and like his personality, like he's just, he's faithful, he's loyal, he's hardworking, and he's just going to show up day after day after day and be able to do the same training day and day after day. And, um, he's very successful that way, but he's being true to who he is, you know? And whereas like, I've always been, you know, a dreamer, a risk taker, also just like very extreme kind of in nature. Um, if you follow me on like Twitter, Instagram, you probably have picked up on that a little bit. Um, where, you know, I'm all in and I'm really pushing the envelope and, and taking some big risks. Um, but that's just, you know, my personality. That's who I am. That's, that's what makes me excited. And I think that's the big thing behind athletics and, and getting peak performance out of athletics is this whole thing of like, how, how do I get the most excited? So like, for example, when I ran the New York City Marathon, uh, the only year that I ran it, I was probably in the best shape of my life. Um, but I, I kind of was listening to media that had been talking about my strategy of running in front of not being that wise. And, you know, a lot of people are just trying to encourage me, just tuck in behind everyone, enjoy the ride. And I did that and I was not engaged in the race. I wasn't excited during that entire time I was sitting in the back of the pack because it's just not who I am. Like I, I thrive in the front. I get excited in the front. So, you know, New York 
didn't go great for me that year. I still ended up rallying, finishing fourth, but I learned a valuable lesson that I, no matter what other people are saying, I got to find a way to get excited in the race. And if I'm more excited in the front, it's going to pay off a lot more for me to be in the front, breaking the wind for everyone than for me to be in the back, disengaged in the race and, uh, and falling off the back. So uh, I think that excitement factor is so, so important. Like if athletes can find a way to get excited while they're out there, they're going to perform well. Ryan, this is good stuff, man. I mean, it's something that we all have to really reflect upon more deeply and, and unwind and, and figure out what works. And I mean, maybe the next person uh, gets excited by uh, writing a, a nice number in their training log and never missing a race or never missing a workout. But we, we have to be true to ourselves. And I, I bring this up because I remember uh, reading about your retirement and uh, noticing uh, a bunch of uh, pot shots. The critics were were saying like, yeah, this guy trained so crazy that he, he took years off his career and he could have gone longer, uh, blah, blah, blah. And my, my first reaction was, mate, you ran a bloody 204 marathon. So, you know, to get to that point requires, you know, such a sacrifice. And I, I'm arguing that one of the sacrifices was longevity of plodding along for, for more years if you had toned it down and not been so excited, I guess. Yeah, yeah, for for sure. For me, like, that's the trade that, that I'd make every time. You know, I'd trade a couple extra years for perhaps reaching a level that I wouldn't otherwise have reached without taking that kind of risk. And, you know, I always, it, sometimes when you look at guys like Meb or Bernard Lagarde or Dina Castor, you're kind of like, man, they, how are they still so fast, so old? But I always remind myself, like, those are the outliers, you know, like, and Kipchoge, he's an outlier, you know, like it's amazing what he's doing, but I don't know if everyone should necessarily compare their journey to those people's journey because they are a very few and rare breed that's able to run well, super well late into their careers, into their late thirties, even early forties, Abdi Abdurham in the same way, you know? Um, but most people, I always looked at like all the guys I ran with at Stanford, um, other pro runners I trained with, like I had a longer career than almost all those guys. So you can kind of, you know, it's all a matter of who are you comparing yourself to? Like I'm, I'm grateful for the years that I had and the experiences I had and the highs I had and, and all the lows as well. Like I wouldn't have done it any other way. Love it. And then what happened when you retired was this amazing, uh, story of transforming your your body and your athleticism and i would i would have to say that this is a a world record that uh, will be very difficult to break which is uh breaking 205 in the marathon and then uh deadlifting what are you now like over 400 pounds or something crazy uh, yeah yeah my deadlift is 405 my squats 380 and my bench is 315 so yeah and that was so i retired a little over three years ago so it's like been three years of every day uh in the weight room pushing myself so it's been a super fun challenge to take on wait does that mean you're in the thousand pound club like the the high school football linemen and the the, the big guys 
<laughs> I don't know if it's the big guys or the big girls, but, um, you know, there's definitely girls who are, who are benching more than I am, squatting, deadlifting more than I am. But yeah, yeah, it puts me over a thousand pounds, which that was my original goal when I retired from pro running is I was like, man, I want to be able to get my bench, deadlift and squat all over 300. But I thought it'd take me five, 10 years, something like that, but I actually arrived there a lot quicker than I thought. Like I think by two years into it, I was already at those, at those those marks and now i've kind of set new goals for myself i want to get my uh i want to get my deadlift to 500 my squat to 450 and my bench to 400 so uh, but i'm giving myself lots of time to do that because i realize like your biggest gains uh, spe- especially in strength training happen right when you first get into it so um you know i'm still i'm getting about 25 pounds a year on all my lifts and uh and I've been pretty consistent with that type of improvement curve. So I'm hoping to just, you know, keep that going until, you know, I'm 40 years old and hopefully get my bench over 400. <laughs> then we're going to have to put you on like different podcasts. You'll be on the Muscle Man show with Ryan Hall and talking about is which, which weight belt are you using? The Velcro one or the, 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 uh, the belt buckle one? Oh my gosh. That's, that's amazing. I, I have to ask a question here, which is, were you, um, were you messing around with this at all during your running career? And if not, would you possibly uh, uh, consider that since there's all kinds of benefits to be had? Yeah, no, I hated the weight room when I was running. <laughs> and I, I, my goal when I'd go to the weight room was to get in and out as quick as I possibly could because number one i wasn't like convinced it made a big difference for marathoners you know when you're racing a bunch of 110 120 pound african guys you don't really imagine them in the weight room a whole lot (laughs) and and i i would i would after training with them i'd say they probably are not most of those guys are not in the weight room you know certainly not all but probably most i think that's pretty safe to say um so yeah my mentality was just get through it as quick as i could and then uh, you know, when I retired from, from running, I needed an outlet to continue to push myself. And it kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier of like honoring yourself or staying true to yourself. Like I, what makes me tick is like physically challenging myself every single day. And that's really what I loved about running. And so that's, you know, what I, what I did in the weight room is I just fell in love with pushing myself every single day. I actually like it better than running because you can go hard every single day. And running, you know, you have three hard days a week. The rest of the the days are just easy running. Whereas in the weight room, I'm going to failure every single day, every set. Um, I'm, I'm seeing what I can do, you know. So I really, I just love the pushing myself. And then I'm also too, I love... I love seeing growth and improvement. And that was one of the things that, uh, was really hard for me in the last four years of my career from 2012 uh, until 2016 when I retired was I just saw myself kind of gradually getting worse and worse. And despite, you know, trying as hard as I'd ever tried before to run well. So it was really gratifying, you know, to get into weightlifting, be so bad at it, so weak. I mean, I was probably benching, deadlifting, and squatting like my body weight, which was 127 pounds in September before I retired. So, you know, super weak, had nowhere to go but up and just, just loved every time I went in the weight room, just feeling a little bit stronger, a little bit stronger. But I will say I was, I was pretty embarrassed early on walking around the weight room. I was hanging my head pretty low. <laughs> hey, nothing, nothing to do but progress. And, uh, 
no, nothing to laugh at either, uh, uh, benching your weight or, or, uh, or deadlifting it. Cause it's still, it's still a, a basic level of competency. Now I wonder, uh, you're, you're going in there and going hard all the time. Do you, you don't see any risk of, uh, overtraining patterns similar to that of the runner? <laughs> That's a great question. I love that. Um, <laughs> I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't recommend that people follow my same training regimen, but I would say that again, it's like goes back to like me being true to who I am. Like even if I risk like the chance of injury, which I have not had one injury since I started weight training, um, I would still, you know, I have to push myself hard. So like I tried like signing up for a program one time, they wrote me a program and I got to the first day and like everything was like stop three short of failure. And I was like, never done that before. I was like, I'm sorry, I just can't do this. Like I have to go hard. (laughs) Like there's just no, that's just who I am, you know? Um, so it kind of just goes back to that, like staying true to who I am and, and it's working, you know, if it stops working, if I get hurt or stop seeing progress, I'll be, you know, I'll quickly change it up and, uh, you know, perhaps space out my workouts more or not go as heavy or I don't, the, the weight room is fun because you can go about it. You're always changing and tweaking things and there's so many different things you can do to switch things up. So whenever I kind of start to hit a little bit of a plateau, I'm just quick, quick to change it up. But, um, I kind of got to stay true to, to who I am and, and go into failure. It's just, just how I operate. So part of this story, when you announced your retirement from running was, uh, your testosterone was fried. You, you, you had hormone imbalances contributing to your uh, declining performance and realizing that your, your body didn't have any more. And now, of course, we read about the science and all the articles that, you know, getting into the weight room can help you restore testosterone and get all these wonderful hormonal boosts of the adaptive hormones, unlike the uh, high-level endurance training, which is basically just trying to tear you apart every day. Uh, I, I imagine you're going to report that um, besides gaining the muscle, you have some health improvements in general as well. Oh yeah, hundred percent. Um, my energy levels are way higher. My motivation is way up. Um, yeah, like I just feel way better. I, I just tell people like kind of my lifestyle now compared to my lifestyle when I was running professionally. Um, I felt great when I was running professionally or when I was actually out in the forest running, but the rest of the day I was just tired all the time, sleeping all the time. I was lazy. I wasn't really good for anything besides training, eating and sleeping. Whereas now, you know, I, I go sometimes into my garage at 5 a.m., bust out my workout and then I'm going 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 the whole rest of the day never taking a break um doing dad stuff doing business stuff doing work around the house whatever needs to be done um but my energy is just it's through the roof compared to how it was when i was running so um i think i think you know people can probably find a healthier balance than you know where i was at with my running training it at the level you need to train at to, to be a professional marathon runner is not a super healthy, sustainable lifestyle. 
So I don't think that, you know, you have to avoid cardio at all costs. Although I tell people I'm allergic to cardio now. I don't do hardly any running anymore. I try to do as little as possible. Um, but I think you can find a nice balance of running, weight training and keep your hormones in, in a good spot that way. And then a lot of it too just comes back to nutrition, you know, like, as a pro runner, I'm 5'10". I got, I, I raced my best at about 137 pounds, which is not my natural weight. Like, I would guess that if I was not doing weights and just like a normal guy not running, I'd probably be somewhere around 160 pounds. So, you know, I'm operating at 20 to 30 pounds less than I should be. And that's just very, very hard on your body, uh, in the long term. So I think if people can find that, that balance, it'd be at a healthy weight, fueling themselves really well, and then incorporating weight training into along with their cardio or running or biking or whatever they're into. I think I think you can find that kind of sweet spot. Wow, that's an amazing insight that you're doing as little running as possible. And I I wonder, you know, you were seen as this uh this 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 nature boy running free in the mountains of Big Bear and coming down onto the track and breaking the state record and you know, you just seem like this natural runner all along. Uh, you got married to another natural runner who was setting records since she was a little girl, uh, and now you're <laughs> now you're like your your um, your shoulders didn't even make the screen on the Skype video. Uh, so I wonder if the running was more about the competitive drive than the actual physical act of being an endurance athlete. And I I'm, I know that there's you know, guys that I race with, uh, and they've been going strong for 30 years, they go and do the Hawaii Ironman and all kinds of other, uh, races and they train and it's, it's their, it's embedded into their lifestyle where for me, you know, I, I thought it was strenuous. It was arduous. Um, it might not be my first choice in, in terms of entertainment value to go for a, a run or a bike ride. And so I, I try to do very little as well, but I don't know, sometimes it's in your blood in a different way. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I thought I was always that way as well. Like I thought that I just loved running and I did, I loved the sensation of running. Like even if I wasn't, you know, trying to in a race, trying to set a record or whatnot, like I just loved the feeling of it. Um, but you know, I, I'm, I'm, I talk about this in my book as well about seasons and I have like, pretty deliberate seasons where like that was the season of running, you know? And then once that season ended with the world marathon challenge, I entered into a new season of weight training, coaching, uh, writing, speaking, all that kind of stuff where my journey became more about helping other people than trying to maximize my own personal performance. Um, so I think that kind of helps me to be able to move on from something that seemed like it was, I was made to do it, you know, cause I think I was made to do it in that season, but I don't think that season was supposed to last forever. Yes. Let's get into the timeline now. So you, uh, you did the world marathon challenge and that was the end of your running career. Tell us. Yes. So, which was crazy. Like, so I got a text message from my friend. I was in the weight room. I'd retired about three months previously. And I get this text from my friend telling me he's going to run this world marathon challenge, seven marathons and seven days on seven continents. And I was like barely running at all. I had zero desire to go do any racing, but there was something about that that just kind of captured me. And I think part of it is he was doing it for his 
church, the Dream Center in Los Angeles, which is an amazing church. He's the pastor at the church. And I was like, oh, that'd be really cool to like be involved with helping him raise money and support and awareness for his church. And so I just texted him back. I was like, I was like, let me know if you want company. I'd love to go. And, uh, you know, not really expecting him to be like, yeah, you should like come, you know, and he was fully on board with it though. Like right away, he's like, you should definitely do it with me. It's be awesome. So, uh, you know, I didn't train for it. I decided that I'd rather enjoy my life and have one bad week of running than to not enjoy running for six months or however long it take me to prepare for a challenge like that. And, uh, and then, you know, have a pretty good week. So, and plus two, like, I just felt like it's already a challenge, but you can make it even more of an epic challenge by not training for it. So, um, I was pretty nervous, you know, uh, and even Sarah, my wife, she was telling me, I remember like the week before I left for the trip, she's like, like, are you sure you can do this? Like, this might not be a good idea. Having my longest run leading up to it was eight miles and my, I was probably running maybe 20 miles a week, maybe. And the world marathon challenge is 183 miles in one week and you're traveling all over the globe. So, um, it made it for a very epic challenge. It was an interesting experience because I was actually getting in better shape as the week was going on. I was kind of like training into shape. So my fastest marathon was day five in Morocco. I think I started out at like 3.30 or 3.40 or something. I don't remember exactly what my time was in Antarctica. And then I was just kind of gradually working it down. And then in Morocco, I believe I ran like 3.04, 3.06, somewhere right in that range. And I was, But was feeling really good. So I was I was getting excited for the last two days and then i had a little hip thing that i was feeling i was like oh it's nothing you know and then the next day in dubai day six it was it was pretty bad where i had to like stop and walk the second half and i was like oh no like this is turning into something serious is that kind of sharp searing pain that's you know usually you don't run through it so yeah, i got off at the airplane or tried to get off the airplane in Sydney on day seven and I stood up and I had the kind of pain that's like the shooting like take your breath away kind of pain that was coming from my my hip and I knew I was like oh this is gonna be a long long night because so, we started at 1 30 in the morning on that last day in Sydney and we just did a, a mile out a mile back on Manly Beach so we just did that 13 times and I was I felt like I was out there for days I was like man running a five and a half hour marathons way harder than running 204 in the marathon i just felt like endless suffering so i was i was happy when i got to the finish line and uh got to kind of say goodbye to the sport on my terms the way i wanted to say goodbye to it um i'd always pictured i, I remember watching wrestling i believe in the olympics where like if they wrestle their last match and they're going to retire they take their shoes off and they leave them on the mat and i was like oh man i'm gonna do that my last marathon and i never had the opportunity but then with the world marathon challenge i had that opportunity in sydney so you know i got down on my hands and knees very gingerly and uh took my shoes off put them on the finish line and and walked away and never looked back so um it, it was just a nice kind of act um almost like a prophetic act of saying i gave everything i could to this sport for for 20 years and i now that season is over and my journey's become more, it's still related. Like, like one season helps you in another season. Like everything I learned as a professional athlete um, is now spilling over into this role as a coach and uh, author and speaker. 
Um, so it's not like the seasons aren't related at all, but, um, it was a very clear marking that one season was over and a new one had begun. Oh my goodness. Can you describe your travel agenda quickly? You went, you went first to Antarctica and also tell me, was there anything of an organized event or was it just you two guys doing your thing and then hopping on a plane? Yeah, no, it was a super well-organized event. I don't know if I would have been able to do it otherwise. Um, it's called the World Marathon Challenge. People can find it online if you just Google it. And uh, Richard Donovan's the race director, and he just does an amazing job with it. And so there was a group of about 30 of us, I believe, right around there, that were running this all together. And then he had staff there as well, doctors, other people to help with the events. And so, you know, they're just runs that they're hosting in each country. Um, but just top notch is done really, really high level. Um, you know, we're on a private jet the whole way and in business class seats. So like the entire week, I didn't watch one movie on the airplane. I was asleep or eating. Those were the two things I was doing all week long on the airplane. And we'd get to the destination. I'd be like, no, we're here already. We need to like circle around for a couple more hours. I need some more sleep. Um, so yeah, it's pretty, it, we did it as cush as you could possibly do it. And so our travel route the year we did it, because it changes every year. Um, we did Antarctica, and then we popped over to Chile, southern Chile, uh, for South America, and then up to Miami for North America, over to Spain for Europe, Morocco for Africa, um, Dubai, and then we ended in Sydney. So... Yeah, it was, it was a lot of travel, but it, it took forever just to get down to southern Chile to go to Antarctica. I had to take two red-eye flights. I didn't even know that's like possible to, to be traveling for two days in a row to get somewhere. But yeah, it took, took forever to get down there. Now, starting at 1.30 in the morning in Sydney, was it because you guys were on some weird time clock? You might as well just start because everyone thinks it's daytime or how did that work? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> cause, cause we finished, I think, I think, uh, Richard's line of thinking was like, let's do it now while the getting's good. And then if people are having like real problems, he wanted to make sure they had every opportunity available, like as much time as they needed for that last marathon to not come to that end of the week, you know, time wise. So I think that's why he just wanted to bust out. I would have loved to have slept a couple hours in the, in the, um, hotel and then started my run a little later. But, um, yeah, it was a unique experience. I'll never forget like running at night with the moon out and the stars blazing and limping and hobbling along <laughs> and, uh, you know, being, uh, very humbled in that last marathon for sure. Okay. Then the seasons change and. I loved in the book and also reading your story in real time when you guys decided to uh, go over and adopt in Ethiopia. And my, my favorite, uh, I, I circled this, uh, this paragraph in the book where, um, you, you know, you made the big decision with your wife that you decided to adopt and then you discovered that there's a long waiting list to get a baby. Uh, and then conversely, there's a long waiting list for the older kids to get a family. And you guys thought that was pretty, pretty messed up. And, uh, that kind of led you to, 
the the title of the story is the four sisters so i want to hear all about it <laughs> yeah yeah i mean it kind of just blew our mind and i think what helped us was you know we we're over there training in ethiopia when we we're on that wait list for an infant and then we went to these orphanages to visit and we got to interact with them personally and when you have that like face-to-face interaction you're just like man i, I would I would take this kid home in a second to make sure that they have a good shot at life, you know? Um, it just, it really changes you when, when you're personally there seeing the kids, seeing their tattered clothes, like seeing, you know, and they, they had a nice living situation because they're an Addis in a nice orphanage, but still like, the fact that they can never leave this orphanage and they're out playing, you know, in the driveway playing soccer and that's their exercise for the day, um, just kind of breaks your heart, you know? And so with, with that heart condition, yeah, we came back to the States, changed all of our paperwork up, um, had to go through a couple social workers because we couldn't find our first one wouldn't approve us to adopt four girls because she was like, you guys are first time parents. You shouldn't walk straight into four, four, uh, you know, older children, <laughs> that's going to be uh, too big of a challenge for you guys, which I was kind of offended by that just because I don't know. I'm not an expert. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> I'm not an expert in social work, but it seems like their job is to make sure that did she know she was speaking to two national champions <laughs> when she thought it was too big of a challenge for you guys? Yeah, she did. Like she knew like all about us and our story and stuff. But yeah, I mean, I feel like a social worker's job is to make sure that you are well educated, that it, well educated in the sense of the challenge that you're walking into and you're prepared and, um, you've done your homework and read your books and stuff like that. Um, and that you have the means to take care of the children that, you know, they're going to be in a safe home, all those things I feel like is the role of the social worker, not necessarily to determine what you're capable of in taking on, you know? So anyways, we, we ended up switching social workers. Our next one was great. She did just what I just was saying where she was just making sure our, we were ready to go and had everything in place and um, could take care of the girls. And, um, so she approved us right away and, uh, and yeah, we, we just jumped in, you know, and I talk about this in the book a little bit, like for me, uh, the decision to adopt, adopt our girls was there's kind of like two different roads that I was facing, you know, one was like the fearful road where like, I was just seeing everything, all my inadequacies, all my fears of like first time parent. Um, is this a good idea? Can I do a good job? Is it fair to the kids? Like all these kind of fears that, that you mull over at night when you can't sleep. But then the other road was like the road of love. And it was like, like we can do this. Like we have a home where we can take in the girls and, and I just feel this love in my heart for the girls. And so I decided I'm glad that I made the decision to, you know, travel the road of love and, and follow love and let that direct my decision making over fear because, um, that's just when I'm at my best, that's, that's how I like to, to operate. So it's been such a blessing to have the girls. They're, they're so, so amazing. And, um, you know, in a lot of ways, 
days we feel like we kind of cheated the system. Like when I see like my little brother or other people with infants and not sleeping at all and um, all the things that go with having little tiny kids around. I'm like, man, I didn't have any of that. I still haven't changed a diaper and I've, I have four daughters. So, um, well, I thought that was cool that, um, the, the, these sisters were, uh, possibly slated for being split up to make it easier for them to place. And, uh, that was, that was part of your story too, where you're just like, Oh, okay. Four, you know, whatever, here we go. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, coming from a big family, they were talking about potentially splitting our girls up. And so, you know, I'm in the middle of five kids. Like, you don't split up siblings. So that, that made me even like more motivated to be like, we need to do something about it and do something about it soon. Cause our girls had been looking for a family for three years and, and weren't able to find one. So, and our oldest daughter at the time when we adopted her, she was 16. So, um, you know, it wasn't a couple more years and she's aging out of the program. Uh, and I have, uh, heard some here and there that, uh, there's some fast runners in the in the group. Yeah, yeah. Our oldest daughter Hannah, she's the only one who runs currently. Um, we're trying to reverse psychology on our younger two, which isn't currently working out for us. But uh, not really. We we want them to choose, you know, their own their own way and their own passions. Um, but. Our oldest daughter, Hannah, she's into it. She's 18 now. She's only a junior in high school because she'd never been to school before when she came to the U.S. So we put her back as far as possible to help her academically to catch up. So she still has one more year of high school and has just gotten faster and faster and faster. It's been really fun to watch her just progress. And really, like for her, it's just been consistency, you know, like she just gets out there six to seven days a week and does her thing and um, has just grown and grown and grown and i think she ran 17 i don't know exactly what her time was in cross this year i think it was about 17 10 or something like that wow incredible yeah yeah she's she's coming around uh tell us about sarah and where uh she's been with her career and where it stands today yeah, she's, uh, she's coming off the best year that she's ever had, you know, having, uh, personal records in both the half marathon and marathon last year. Um, she ran 226. I don't remember the seconds. Um, 226 and change at, uh, Ottawa last, last, uh, spring, I guess late spring. Um, and just continues to get stronger and stronger. And I think it just, to me, it illustrates like everyone kind of comes into their own in their own timing in the marathon especially at the elite level so just because you're good on the track doesn't necessarily mean you're gonna hit home runs coming out of the gate in the marathon sometimes it just takes build up after build up after build up and each one builds on the last one and to now you know and that's just been her experience every single one she gets stronger and stronger she's further and further along so you know we're hoping to uh, continue to knock her pr down a little bit um before we get to the u.s olympic trials which is a little over a year from now and uh yeah we'll be we'll be excited to show up toe the line in atlanta and and have her take you know what will probably be <laughs> i say probably uh be her last you know olympic 
bid, uh, trying to make that last Olympic team. She's been to, oh man, a whole bunch of Olympic trials now. She did both the marathon and track trials last time around. Um, so ever since 2004, she's been at every single Olympic trials. Um, but always been, you know, like on the cusp, always in the final, always making a run at it, but hasn't quite, quite broken through and gotten to that level yet. So I'm hoping that, uh, you know, she hits a magical day in Atlanta and, and gets herself a spot to Tokyo. Maybe get her in the weight room, do some deadlifts. She could have more explosiveness on the last six miles of her <laughs> marathon, or uh, maybe not. I don't know. Well, she'd be able to beat everyone up at least, right? <laughs> um, she'd, she'd have nowhere to go but up with uh, her, you know, her current uh, body type and packing on muscle. But um, for you and this wonderful book project, I got to say, you know, a lot of athletes will will spit out a book, and um, some of them are um, a little flat, but. Yours was a great read. You can tell that you put uh, your passion into it and your your real personal message and being authentic and vulnerable. So I congratulate you on that and just want to know uh, what you're up to from a, a career sense. You said you're, you're coaching and writing and speaking. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I coach a, a few other professional athletes uh, here in town, um, Rachel Johnson and Matt Lano. Um, and then obviously Sarah as well. And then I uh, coach some people like online personal coaching. I have, I think, nine other clients that I coach are runners. And then, yeah, traveling around, doing some speaking, really excited about this book coming out. Um, it was, you know, like me taking my own medicine, writing it, uh, just helped me process a lot and kind of make sense of everything. And, uh, and I just put, put my whole heart into it. So I'm just hoping that, you know, people get a chance to check it out and that they find something, uh, encouraging that they can take from it to help them on their own journey. So. Let's plug it uh, properly. Uh, the release date, we're going to time this show so that it's out at the a time you can go order it on Amazon, run the mile that you're in. Uh, what else do we want to learn about it? Uh, yeah, I mean, you can yeah pick it up on Amazon, Barnes & Noble. Um, and then you can find me on Twitter and Instagram, Ryan Hall 3. I think that would, that would do it. Ryan Hall, still cranking. Thank you so much for spending the time with us. Great insights. Good luck with the book. Yeah, thanks, Brad. Thanks for having me on the show. So Chris Kelly, Nourish, Balance, Thrive, we're, we're talking about health, and you're telling me a funny story about your picky four-year-old daughter that won't eat unless there's Primal Kitchen uh, condiments on the table. It's true. My daughter will not eat unless there's f***ing the Primal Kitchen Wilder. <laughs> it's, it's this cute thing, actually, she does. We have a local state park called Wilder Ranch. Oh, yeah. And uh, she calls the ranch dressing Wilder Ranch dressing. Which <laughs> we, 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 there's no way we're going to correct her on that. It's just too perfect. It's so, so endearing. Uh, how old um, is she? She's four. Oh my god! So she likes like the mayo on. Oh yeah, she so she loves those. So we love them as well. We have uh, we we eat them all the time. We eat the mayo. We eat the balsamic. We eat the the ranch. Um, the avocado oil we use all the time, and, and so you know that's completely genuine. And I don't mind talking about that because you took the pain in the ass out of condiments. I really appreciate that. What an authentic spot from Chris Kelly at Nourish, Balance, Thrive. And yes, Primal Kitchen, you can call it Wilder Ranch Dressing if you want. <laughs> and uh, we'll send five cents of the proceeds over to that beautiful state park because they're, they're trying to make ends meet in Santa Cruz Mountains. Thank you very much, Chris. <laughs> That's my pleasure.